Acts chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 9, Acts 1 and verse 9. When he had spoken, that is, Jesus, these things, and while they, that is, the disciples, watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And these all continued with one accord and prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 And he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us, and he obtained a part in the ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. Look at this phrase because this will become important and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed, and they said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here today. Lord, we really have, truly have, sensed your presence and um, in a tangible, meaningful, significant way. And we believe now that you want to speak to us in a way that will change and transform our hearts and lives And will change the way that we pursue you, the way that we walk in you, and the way, God, that we are effective for the work of the kingdom. I ask, God, that you would, in these moments, supernaturally arrest the attention of everyone in this room. I pray, God, for your anointing to rest upon my life, not as something that I have earned or deserved, but as that which will enable me to rightly divide the word of truth and speak with authority and integrity and simplicity and clarity. So speak to our hearts today and change us by your word. and Let your presence permeate us and fill us afresh and anew, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we um, are moving into the second uh, part of Acts chapter 1. Kyle opened up 
last week with Acts 1. And uh, so it's the second part of the first chapter of Acts, and it is the second of four messages uh, in this series regarding Pentecost as we lead up to Pentecost Sunday, just two Sundays from today. And so this is the second of four messages, the second one that comes from Acts chapter 1. Last week we talked about um, Pentecost, and I don't want to assume that anyone, that everyone understands what we mean even by Pentecost. I will tell you that next Sunday I will delve much more into uh, kind of the Old Testament uh, genesis of, of Pentecost or the beginnings of it, where it where it comes from, the whole feast. But let me just say for our sake today, Pentecost was the day, we'll get to it next Sunday in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell on the church, the church was birthed, when the 120 were in the upper room, and in this miraculous move of God on the 50th day after the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and filled everyone in that house. And following that, then Peter preached a sermon, 3,000 people were saved. And from that point on, the church grew from 3,000 to 5,000 and multiplied, and the church continued to grow. So Pentecost, if you will, was the day that the Holy Spirit visited in a powerful way for the first time, and the church was birthed. Now last week, as Kyle was preaching, we discovered the promise of Pentecost, It was in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, just before ascending or going back to heaven, Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit comes. And you're going to become my witnesses and you are going to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so the promise of Pentecost was that the Holy Spirit would come, would fill them, and they then would carry the gospel and get it to the ends of the earth and the world would forever be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice also that part of that promise was that it would happen after the Holy Spirit had come upon you. Until the Holy Spirit had come, they would be unable or incompetent or inept to really carry out the mission that God had given to them. The disciples were told very specifically, whoa, told very specifically to Terry, I hope we can cut that right out of live stream, or I may resign next Sunday. I don't know. But they were told very specifically to Terry in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father came, to wait until the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. Today, so last week was the promise of Pentecost. Today, I want to talk about the preparation for Pentecost. How many... Um, when you are having company or there's a group coming over, how many of you kind of work a little extra to get the house ready? Raise your hand. The rest of you have perfectly immaculate houses all the time or your slobs. I don't know which, which it may be, but, um, I get, we kind of, I get kicked into directive mode when we are, when we're having folks over, uh, there are directives. I don't do a lot of domestic stuff, but I'm not very good at it, or at least I act like I'm not very good at it. You know how that works. But um, I have certain things I need to do. I I have to reacquaint myself with the vacuum, you know, and those kind of things. And and so we kind of, when there's somebody coming, we want to prepare for that, don't we? And so today I want to talk about preparation for Pentecost. 
what did the disciples do and how do we prepare if we really desire the Holy Spirit to move in our lives and in our church in a fresh way? How many want God to do things beyond what we have experienced so far? I hope you do. You want to sense the presence of God in new and powerful ways. See lives change. See people that had been written off by everybody else changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. How many believe God can still do that? But it takes the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, I want to talk about the preparation for Pentecost. There are really three uh, preparatory acts that had to take place before the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. Just once again, to remind you, to set the context, Jesus, after his resurrection, 40 days passed. On the 40th day, we get to Acts 1. That is when Jesus said, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit's come upon you, but wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power. And then on that 40th day, what we see now happened, and we will unpack uh, today, really move toward those last 10 days for the day of Pentecost. The first thing that had to happen was the enthroned position of Christ. Let me make it real simple. That sounds kind of theological. Jesus had to ascend. He had to go back to heaven for the Holy Spirit to come. He had to go back to his enthroned position, seated at the right hand of the Father, so that the Holy Spirit could come in power on the day of Pentecost. Let me read these first three verses of our text to you again. After, or now when he had spoken these things, and while they, the disciples, watched, Jesus was taken up, and a cloud received him. That is his ascension. He was taken up out of their sight. And so while the disciples looked steadfastly, you can picture that, they watched him. As they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, there were two men, Clearly angels that stood by them, the disciples, they were in white apparel. And they say to the disciples, you men of Galilee, why are you standing there gazing up into the heaven? Because the same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gathers with his disciples. This is the 40th day after his resurrection, and he gives them instructions. And after making clear to them what their mission was, to carry the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, he suddenly disappeared from their sight. And there would be, watch this, there would be no more post-resurrection appearances. They would not see Jesus again after that day. Now I say that because up to this point, for 40 days, they had experienced several appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. As a matter of fact, and I don't want to muddy the waters, and this is a theological fine point that does not affect one's salvation, but it's interesting to reflect upon the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension seem to be, if we're really careful and look at the text correctly, seem to be one continuous movement. Both together, the resurrection and the ascension, together constituting the exaltation of Christ. 
Now this day in Acts 1, his ascension was not the first time that Jesus had vanished from his disciples during these 40 days. You probably remember on the day of the resurrection, there were two travelers, remember, on the Emmaus Road, two disciples of Jesus. They had heard about the death of Jesus, and some people said that his body had been taken, and they're traveling, and they're, they're sad, and they're disappointed, and they are hurt. And you will remember that suddenly there was someone who joined them in their journey. They didn't realize that someone was Jesus. And they poured their hearts out to Jesus. They told him how distraught they were because this one that they loved, that they thought would bring the kingdom, was now gone. And, and Jesus, unbeknownst to them, just watch right here, unbeknownst to them, Jesus begins to unpack it for them, the story of himself in the Old Testament. And he says to them, don't you know that this had to take place? The Son of Man had to die. And they're still unaware that it is Jesus. The Bible says they encouraged Jesus to stay and have dinner with them, have supper with them. And notice the text, it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Notice this, then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And look at this, and then he vanished from their sight. It was just gone. Now, the story of Thomas is kind of the opposite of that. Remember in John chapter 20, Thomas, who was called the twin, Didymus was his name. Uh, he was not with them when Jesus had shown up the first time. And so they told him, we've seen the Lord. And what did Thomas say? I don't believe it. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas said, unless I stick my hand in his side and put my fingers in the prints of his hand, I will not believe. That he is alive. And so then after eight days, he made his grandstand. After eight days, he is now with them this time. And, and notice that Jesus came into the room. Watch this. The doors being shut. And he stood in their midst. So this is kind of opposite of vanishing. He just showed up. The doors were shut. So during those 40 days, please think with me for just a moment. Those 40 days, Jesus is kind of just coming and going. You see, his exaltation, and think with me for a moment, his exaltation was not postponed for 40 days after his resurrection, and he wasn't in some kind of intermediate state. As a matter of fact, I believe after his resurrection, shortly after his resurrection, he did return to the Father's right hand. His resurrection experiences when he appeared to his disciples was simply him accommodating himself to the earthly and the temporal state of the disciples. He even ate with them. Now, Pastor Kevin, you're getting a little odd there. Remember in John chapter 20 and the resurrection. And Mary turns around, supposing him to be the gardener, realizing it was Jesus. And Jesus says, as she is overcome by the presence of Jesus in resurrected form, remember what he said, don't cling to me, don't touch me, Mary, I've not yet ascended to my father. But we find later, they touch him, he invites Thomas to put his fingers in his hands. So I believe Jesus did indeed ascend or return to the exalted place of the Father's right hand. And during those 40 days, there are occasions that he appears among the disciples. 
His visitations were from heaven, the eternal order, to which his body of glory now belonged. Now the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they had seen the heavenly glory of Jesus before. They'd been on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that in Matthew 17, when Jesus is transfigured with Elijah and Moses. And this would be the same glory they now watched him leave in and the same glory in which he would return. In Matthew 17, in the, in the transfiguration, the text says he was taken up in a cloud. It is nopheli. The word is in the Greek. In Mark 13, Jesus said, you'll see the Son of Man coming in the nopheli, in the clouds. And here in Acts chapter 1, he is caught up in the nopheli. And so these two white-robed men witness to this same Jesus, he will return. He will come in like manner. It's interesting that the book of Deuteronomy, the law says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, it will be confirmed. There are two witnesses saying the same Jesus that you've seen ascend is going to return in like manner. I want you to really think with me here for just a moment. They now had seen Jesus come in power and glory and he would return that way. But there would be an interval between his exaltation and his return where it would be the Holy Spirit that would keep people in living union with Jesus. In other words, the disciples watched him leave in glory. They are promised he is going to return in glory. But between that day and the day that is yet to come, his return the Holy Spirit was going to keep people in a living union with Jesus. That's why in John 16, remember these words of Jesus to his disciples before the cross. Please get this. But now I go away to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you a truth. It is to your advantage for me to go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Everybody look right here and get this. This is a very important truth upon which the rest of this will build. So Jesus says to his disciples, before the cross, I need to leave. It's necessary for me to go so that when I go, I can send the Holy Spirit to you. I need to be enthroned so I can pour out the Spirit on you. Now Christ is ascended. But his abiding presence, this is maybe the most powerful truth of this message. I love this. But his abiding presence and his energy and his power. We'll fill the whole book of Acts. Jesus leaves that day. But in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people are saved. In Acts chapter 3, a lame man is healed. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, miracles take place. The dead are raised later. All kinds of the church grows to 5,000 and it's multiplied. He ascends so that his presence might fill the earth through his church. That will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at this verse on the screen. I've read this hundreds of times. And I think it was only this week or last that this really came to me. 
He who descended, who, who descended? Jesus. He descended when the word became flesh. He left heaven and he came here. Please watch this. He who descended is the very one who ascended. That's Jesus. Higher than all the heavens. Why did he do it? In order to fill the whole universe. He left so that he could fill the whole universe. What in the world does that mean? He left so that he could send the Holy Spirit. So that he could dwell in you and you and you and me and people in Asia and Africa and all around the world. So that his church, empowered by his presence, could fill the whole universe. Isn't that pretty cool and good news? That's why he left. So that he could send the Holy Spirit to fill the universe with his presence. And then look at this next text. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. We are his body. We are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Not to put pressure on us, but can I just tell you, we walk as carriers of the presence of God. And when we go to work and when we go to school and when we go to visit someone, when we go on vacation, when we go out to eat, when we go through the drive through window, when we go to the bank, when we go to work out, wherever we go, we are carriers of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was enthroned so he might send the Holy Spirit so that his presence could fill the whole universe through the people of God that are filled with his presence. That's why he said... The works that I've done, you're going to do, but greater than these, you're going to do because I go because because I go to my Father, and when I go to my Father, I send the Holy Spirit, and it's not just relegated to one body, walking in Galilee or Jerusalem. The presence of God now fills people all around the world with the presence of the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and you and you and all of us and all around the world. So we are carrying the presence of God. And so when Jesus was enthroned as a preparatory act, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was able to come. Your carriers of God's presence don't ever take that responsibility lightly. Number two, The second preparatory act for Pentecost was the united purpose or the unified purpose of the disciples. Key to the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus. We've already established that. But it was also important that the disciples be in unity for the Spirit to fully be manifest. And so they returned to Jerusalem, the text says, from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. You understand The Jews only had a limited amount of real estate they could cover on the Sabbath day. They couldn't travel very far. It was a mile or less. Between Olivet and Jerusalem, it was about two-thirds of a mile, give or take. And so they traveled there, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they came into the upper room where they were staying. Probably the room where they ate the, the Passover supper. Probably the room or the house of John Mark's mother, Mary. They came into that room where they were staying, and the names are listed. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, and Simon, and Judas, the son of James. But notice what they did. They continued 
with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The immediate duty of the disciples was plain. They were to wait in Jerusalem until the heavenly power came that would enable them to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus told them in Acts 4, when they were assembled together, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait, stay there, wait, until the promise to the Father, which he said, you have heard of me. So they traveled to Jerusalem, they went into the upper room, and they, along with the women that traveled with Jesus, about 120 in all, they engaged in united and persistent prayer. Their command was to wait, but as they had watched Jesus in his ministry, they had learned that with waiting, prayer was crucial. But it was a united type of prayer. It was persistent prayer. They continued in one accord. Their devotion to prayer was continued until God answered them on the day of Pentecost from heaven. A.T. Pearson said that there has never been a revival in any country that has not begun in united prayer. And no revival has ever continued beyond the duration of these prayer meetings. Prayer is so vital. We want the working of the Holy Spirit among us. For the coming of Pentecost power, unified prayer was the key. And that is still true today. Pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, Jim Simbala, says the church was birthed not in a clever sermon, but in a prayer meeting. 1949, George Wood Sr. and his wife, Elizabeth Wood, they were American missionaries serving in China and Tibet. And in 1949, they were forced to leave the country And they handed over their ministry to a local pastor, Pastor Mung, who took over the church of about 200 people. The Woods were forced to return to America and would not return again or would not ever return again to China. And by 1985, both George Wood Sr. and his wife Elizabeth had passed away and they never knew what had happened in that small little church that they had worked in China. In 1988, three years after both of his parents were gone, George Wood, um, who once was the general superintendent of our fellowship, the Assemblies of God, he returned to China and he met with Pastor Meng and his wife, who were now in their 80s, and the Mengs told George Wood the story that for 28 years the communist government had done their best to extinguish the church and root out Christianity altogether. Pastor Monk was not allowed to preach. He spent nine years in jail during those years. It was illegal to baptize or to in any way indoctrinate anyone under the age of 18. When the government finally allowed Pastor Monk to reopen the church in 1983, There were only 30 people left, and most of them were older. So assuming that the church now in 1985 was on its last leg, it had only been open now for two years, 30 elderly people were all that made up the church. 
now George Wood, assuming that this church no longer existed or was on its last leg, he said to Pastor Mung, how many believers do you have in your church today? So Pastor Mung's wife brought out a little cardboard roll that was held together by yarn. The first page was filled with writing, five columns, name, age, gender, address, and occupation. And there were about 20 names on that front sheet. George Wood continued turning page, page after page with name and gender and occupation and age and address. And finally, just two years after the church was open with only 30, George Wood finally said to Pastor Mung, well, how many believers do you have that have been baptized believers in your church? And Pastor Mung said, just over 1,500. George Wood, in disbelief, said, how in the world did that happen? And Pastor Mung just smiled and said, we believe that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then with a twinkle of an eye and a little smile, he said, and we pray a lot. Pastor Mung died in 2006 at the age of 96 when he passed. The number of baptized believers in that church exceeded 15,000 baptized believers. The power of unified purpose, unified prayer. It's why we believe in prayer. It's not the most exciting thing for some to see that we take five minutes of quiet and pray every Sunday morning, but we're committed to it because Jesus said, my father's house should be a house of prayer. And I pray that you are praying more than the five minutes here, that we become a church of prayer. It's why we have prayer meetings on Friday night six times a year. It's why we've encouraged you to pray for your reach three and really believe God to change their lives. There's power in unified prayer. It is a prerequisite to the coming and the visitation of the Holy Spirit. The enthroned position of Christ was necessary for the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And the unified purpose of the disciples was necessary as well for the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And finally, number three, and I'll be done. The holy integrity of the church also had to be restored. There's another part of this text in Acts chapter 1 that we don't give a lot of time to, but it was way more crucial than we sometimes realize. Remember, there had been a defector among the apostles, right? The defector was Judas. There were 12 that were originally chosen, but Judas had defected. He had betrayed Jesus. He betrayed him with a kiss. He led the guards to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he handed Jesus off to them. Sold him for 30 pieces of silver, and then afterwards, consumed by his guilt, he threw the 30 pieces of silver into the field, and he hung himself. And his life was taken. So one of the orders of business in the upper room in those 10 days before Pentecost was they had to find a successor for Judas. The holy integrity of the church had to be restored. Peter explains the need to replace Judas when he tells the story. He stood up in the midst of them, about 120 of them. And he said the scripture had to be fulfilled, which was spoken by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was a guide to those who arrested him. And he was numbered with us at one time. Peter says he was one of us. He was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Peter goes on to to say that uh, 
describing Judas, he purchased a field and fell headlong into it. Everybody around knew that the field was called Akel Dama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it. But also Psalms had prophesied, let another one take his office. So Peter said, we've got an order of business to deal with here in the upper room. The number had been 12, corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus had also promised in Matthew 19 that there would be 12 thrones upon which the apostles would sit. But because of Judas's betrayal and now his death, his position and his office must be fulfilled or must be filled. There were two qualifications to replace Judas. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the two qualifications were that whoever was chosen to fill the spot of Judas had to have been with them since the day when Jesus was baptized all the way through this day that he had ascended in Acts chapter 1 and he had to be a witness of the resurrection. So there were two candidates. They proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas. who's was also named Justice and Matthias. And then the selection occurred. So they prayed and they said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry, for which Judas by transgression fell. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. So they prayed and they cast lots. The Hebrews had a long history of This being their means of selection. They believed that God worked in that. They believed, Proverbs 16.33, that says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's very every decision is from the Lord. They believed that God would guide that. And so they chose Matthias to fill that spot. I want you to notice something. They did not replace Judas because he died. They all eventually die. James dies in Acts chapter 12, but they don't replace him. Why did they not replace James? Because James did not defect. James did not by transgression fall away. So James could still sit on the throne in glory. And all of those apostles who were later martyred would have their place in eternity on the throne. But Judas, because he defected, would leave that throne vacated. And it was necessary then to fill his position. The ranks of leadership, please listen, had to be restored to full strength and spiritual integrity. This became a key to the outpouring of the Spirit. And I would suggest to you today is still a key to revival. Whenever sin, look right here, has created a breach and a compromise in the church's integrity and discipline, repentance and restoration must be pursued. Revival, as glorious and glamorous as it is, and as much as we desire it, is impossible outside of the confession of our sin. True integrity does not cover up our failure. Chuck Swindoll once said, 
If we have integrity, we don't hide our stumble. We don't act like it didn't happen. Integrity confesses sin and deals with the breach that has been created. Peter said we have to restore the holy character of the church. And then the Holy Spirit could fall. The apostles recognized the breach and the compromise and they dealt with it. It was a necessity, a preparation for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I would suggest to you, we all raised our hands at the beginning. We want God to move. We want his presence to fill us. We want his power to be demonstrated and his glory to be manifest. But are we willing to deal with those issues? Are we willing to pray in a unified way? Are we willing to deal with the breach of holiness that may have occurred in our lives or in the life of the church? Let me just read you this in in closing. Pastor Clayton, you can come. Author Doug Mendenhall shared a brief parable. It's kind of funny. You you can chuckle along with it. It's a parable that should cause all of us to pause and reflect. Here is the parable. Jesus called the other day to say he was passing through. And he wondered if he could spend a day or two with us. And I said, sure, love to see you. When will you hit town? I mean, it's Jesus, you know. It's not every day you get the chance to visit with him. It's not like it's your in-laws and you have to stop and decide whether the advantages outweigh your having to move to the sleeper sofa. By the way, I love my in-laws. They're here, so I need to be careful. That's not, not my story. It was Doug Mendenhall's story. He goes on to say, that's when Jesus told me he was actually in a convenience store out by the interstate. I must have gotten that Bambi in the headlights look because my wife hissed. What is it? What's wrong? Who is that? So I covered the receiver and I told her, Jesus, he's going to arrive in eight minutes. She ran out of the room and started giving guidance to the kids in that effective way. That Marine drill instructors give guidance to recruit way. My mind was already racing with what needed to be done in the next eight, no, seven minutes now. So Jesus wouldn't think that we were reprobate slobs and losers. So I turned off the TV in the den, which was blaring some weird, scary movie I'd been half watching. But I could still hear screams from our bedroom, so I turned off the reality show that it was tuned to. Plus, I turned off the kids' set on the sun porch because I didn't want to have to explain to Jesus, John and Kate plus eight. Um, So... Plus, now there's only six minutes and I had to hurry. My wife had already thinned out the magazines that had been accumulating on the coffee table. She put Christianity Day on top for a good first impression. Five minutes to go. I looked out the front window, but the yard actually looked great thanks to my long, hard work. So I let it go. What could I improve on in, oh, four minutes anyway? I did notice the mail had come, so I ran out to grab it. Mostly it was Netflix envelopes and a bunch of catalogs tied into recent purchases. So I stuffed it back in the box. Jesus didn't need to get the wrong idea. Three minutes from now about how much online shopping we do. I ran back in and picked up a bunch of shoes left by the door and I tried to stuff them in the front closet, but it was overflowing with heavy coats and work coats and snow coats and pretty coats and raincoats and extra coats. We live in the South. Why do we have so many coats? I squeezed the shoes in with just two minutes to go. Plumped up sofa pillows. My wife tossed dishes into the sink and I scolded the kids. She shooed the dog with one minute left. 
I realized something very important. Getting ready for a visit from Jesus is not an eight-minute job. And then the doorbell rang. We talk about wanting the presence of Jesus and wanting the power of the Holy Spirit and thinking that we could just give a quick little prayer and say, come Holy Spirit, do whatever you want to do. It's a little more serious than that. Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, but he meant hear my voice and open the door. He was talking, by the way, to the church there. We use it as a salvation call, but he was talking to the church. I want to come in and fellowship with you. So often we want to carry our membership card. I'm not talking about glad tidings. I'm talking about we're saved. We're going to heaven. But do we really want to fellowship in the presence of Jesus and live out what it means to be carriers of his spirit so that the whole universe is filled with his glory? The apostles took 10 days. They restored the integrity of the church. They prayed in a unified fashion. And from his enthroned position on the day of Pentecost, Jesus stood from his throne and poured out the Holy Spirit that he had promised and it filled the church. And here we are today, more than 2,000 years later, millions of people around the world have been changed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to prepare for Pentecost. Allow the enthroned position of Christ to have his full work in our lives. Unify in prayer. And restore the integrity, not only of the church, but our own lives. And allow him to cleanse us so that we can be prepared for his coming. Stand with me if you would. Father, I thank you for your word today pretty simple word not the fanciest theology not the most articulate sermon nevertheless a truth that you want to fill us with your power and your glory so that we can effectively carry the gospel to a broken hurting community So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come. Come into my life, come into this church and your strength and your power. Because we need you. Come, Holy Spirit, and do in us what only you can do. That is my prayer today. With every head bowed for just a minute or two this morning, if you're here today and you never invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. You've never said, Jesus, I'm lost. I'm broken. You've never said, I, I receive what you did on the cross for me. I believe I am a sinner. And I know that when I stand before God someday, there's no way I'll be welcomed into his holy presence but I believe that you took care of that for me on the cross if I will just believe and receive and so today I want to receive 
If that's you today and you would say, I'd like to receive Jesus Christ into my life. I want to make him the Lord, the Savior of my life. Would you slip up a hand right where you're at? Is there anyone in this room who would say, would you pray for me? I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Anyone in this place, anyone in this room this morning, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life today. I wonder with your heads bowed still for just a moment, how many would say, I'm a believer. I love God. But I need the Holy Spirit to have more of me. I want him to fill me to overflowing so that I can more effectively be his presence in a dark world. How many would raise your hand with me and say that is the desire?